Welcome to Give Theory a Chance. In this episode, Dr. Shai Dromi, a lecturer of sociology at Harvard University and author of Above the Fray, The Red Cross and the Making of the Humanitarian NGO Sector, joins us to read from Luke Boltanski's co-authored article, The Sociology of Critical Capacity. Shai introduces us to Boltanski and Thevenot's analysis of critical moments, the process that follows, and the use of the six worlds of justification. As always, I include a link to the reading with the podcast notes. Hi, Shai. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you, Kyle. All right. So this time we are actually going to take the time to read Luke Boltanski's work. So we already recorded the other podcast where you give us a bit of an overview of who he is or how he inspired your own research. So what I'm wondering here is, could you tell us a little bit of why you chose this specific article? So we're going to be reading from a 1999 publication of Boltanski's titled The Sociology of Critical Capacity. So why this choice? This article is co-authored by Laurent Thévenot. I think it really takes the entire approach that has been developed both in the book on justification, but also in parts in a previous book called Love and Justice's uh, Capacities. And I think that it really gives us a gist of the broader project, even if we're not getting all the details. And especially Luke Boltanski's insistence that individual actors have a critical capacity in a sense that they're able to identify injustices in their lives and they're able to criticize them using a broad frameworks of justice right um, that they're able to do what we normally think that you, know, you have to be a social movement leader or a sociologist to do so i think this chapter which is not too long it is i mean it is somewhat dense, but it's manageable, I think. Um, it really gives you just the gist and then can help guide you as you tackle the very big book on justification. Yeah, and I think to go along with what you're saying, I believe it's 19 pages. Is that right? Yes. So not the longest publication by any means. Not the longest. I think it is uh, organized very clearly. Um, it's just it's just a lot of information, but it's navigatable. So in what class might you assign an article like this? Or, th- or actually, not an article like this, this article. <laughs> this article. Yeah. Um, I think part of it, it depends on what students have been reading before reading this. Um, I think this article would be the most effective after a discussion and reading from uh, Bourdieu, in a way, because it takes such a sharp, turn from Bourdieu's sociology, um, I think students will get the most out of it if it's read in conjuncture with Bourdieu. This could be in a theory course, this could be in a qualitative research course. Um, it could definitely be in a social movements course in discussions over both of the motivation for uh, social movement activism and also um, social movement framing. These would be the main courses that I would think to assign it in. It might be better received in advanced undergraduate or um, graduate courses, I will say that. Because as, as I said, it's, it's dense. Yeah, and, and that seems right. I, I read through it this morning, and the ideas could definitely be lectured on and explained perfectly well in a lower-level undergraduate course. But I think just the yeah. denseness of the writing and some of the, the how challenging the sentences are, it would be pretty easy to lose students after yeah. the first paragraph, I think. <laughs> With, I guess with that in mind, let's get into it. So do you want to take us to the first page? So uh, page 359? Yes. So let's get started. The critical moment, 
This text will focus on the analysis of a particular type of moment which plays an important role in social life. To label those kinds of moments, we will use the phrase moment critique, critical moment, which makes reference at the same time to the critical activity of the persons and to the unusualness of the moment of crisis. What is pertinent for the argument is the reflexivity of this critical moment. The starting situation is something like the following. People involved in ordinary relationships who are doing things together, let us say in politics, works, unionism, and who have to coordinate their actions, realize that something is going wrong, that they cannot get along anymore, that something has to change. Okay, so it seems like there's already in the setup some key terminology that might be worth explaining or reflecting on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, so are there some key parts that you want to lead with? And then I might have some questions about some of the ways using words. Sure. So first we encounter the phrase critical moment. And as you know, with French theorists liking um, double meanings so much, this does have a double meaning. On one hand, it refers to this as a critical, you know, as in like extremely important moment, right? Critical, unusual moment where something erupts, something in a routine action suddenly breaks. The other meaning is, of course, critical in the sense of critical thinking, right? And this is the moment where actors suddenly have a red light bulb kind of uh, going off. Something is not right with the situation they're in and they feel like they have to do something about it, right? So that is first, and, you know, think about it. This doesn't need to be something, you know, drastic, right? But we experience those often. Um, I don't know, suddenly in a conversation with my partner, I realized that, you know, I did all the dishes this week, right? Something, you know, I'm talking to my neighbor, and suddenly I realized that they voiced some sort of microaggression at me, right? Uh, these could be very minute experiences, but they do uh, stop us even for a second, right? So yes, so even though he uses the language critical and crisis, it does not mean massive in scale. Yeah, it could. Okay, yeah. I mean, it could, of course, but mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be. Okay. But really, you know, this is a very general definition, but people in ordinary relationships who are doing something together, so that could be us in our sociology department, it could be, I don't know, some sort of political gathering. It could be, um, I don't know, any other situation where we have to at least be mindful of the fact that there are other people around doing the same thing or engaged in the same action as we are. And then realize that something is going wrong, that they cannot get along anymore, that something has to change, right? And again, this feeling could be very minute, but it could also be a crisis, right? Where I'm saying, well, that's it, I'm, I'm getting up and leaving if things don't change right now. And does that also lead us to so the shortest sentence and the most direct sentence of the paragraph is where he says, what is pertinent for the argument is the reflexivity of this critical moment. Yeah. So is that what's underlying that reflexivity, that realization that things are not going as planned or not, or there is some sort of thing that's not right? Yeah, and I think actually the next paragraph speaks exactly to the reflexivity of the moment, which in a way captures both what generated my sense of that something has gone wrong, and then the fact that I have the capacity to reflect upon what is wrong with it, right? Uh, why don't I read a few more sentences and then we'll get a better sense of this. Sounds perfect. 
To realize has a twin meaning. The word points at the same time to an inward reflexive move and to a performance in the outward world. In the process of realizing that something is going wrong, one has to take a distance from the present moment and to turn backward toward the past. Old things, forgotten words, accomplished acts come back to one's mind through a selective process which links them to one another in order to produce a story which makes sense. This retrospective turn stops the course of action. Okay, so the one part of this reflexivity means me, myself, taking a bird's eye view of the situation, right? Thinking back for a second about how things have gone so far and then identifying what I think is problematic about this situation and then reconstructing it as a story that I can tell you about, you know, ever since we started working in this committee, this person has been disregarding what I'm, I'm saying, okay, or um, suggesting I'm not an expert in my field, right? Any story like that, okay? Okay. So it's not just finding instances from the past that relate to this, but actually creating some sort of connection or narrative arc between them to lead to the current thing going wrong? Exactly, right? I may have noticed the various other instances in real time and, you know, may have dismissed them um, or noticed for a second and forgot about it. But suddenly there's a story in my mind about the situation I'm in being unjust. Yeah. So continuing the page, but this break in the course of action has also another cause. The person who realizes that something does not work rarely remains silent. He or she does not keep their feelings to themselves. The moment where they realize that something does not work is most of the time the moment where they realize that they cannot bear the state of things anymore. The person must, therefore, express discontent to the other persons with whom they are performing until then a joint action. Okay, so the flip side of that reflexive moment is me also articulating, kind of stopping the situation that I'm in and saying, excuse me, but this is wrong, right? So performing outward my sense of discontent. Um, now, the thing that this is oftentimes where the, the kind of critical sociology alarm bells would go off among students, among uh, other readers. Like, you know, we know that not everyone can talk and can call out injustice in all situations. Right. We know that might not be a realistic expectation to have. Right. You know, sometimes a junior untenured um, sociology professor can't. <laughs> Yeah. or doesn't feel able to get up and say, I'm sorry, but this is wrong to their senior colleagues. But at the same time, I think what Boltanski and Tevin are trying to do is to say, okay, well, let's for one second, hold that aside, right? And assume that everyone can talk, yeah, right? And then see what that's going to look like, mm. okay? That doesn't mean that we're forgetting about the inequalities that shape our abilities to talk or to not talk or say, okay, for the sake of argument, let's say, that we can all express what is wrong with the situation, right? What is that going to sound like? And with the understanding that when we do listen to our research subjects, they're going to be articulating a whole variety of reasons why they're talking, what they're seeing uh, wrong that we might not have expected. So what do you make of, uh, I'm just curious, the very final sentence of the paragraph that you read, the person must therefore express discontent to the other persons with whom he is performing, that part makes sense. Mm -hmm. Until then, a joint action. 
So he's mm-hmm. saying up until that moment where things go wrong, up until the point where they do speak, until that point, there's joint action. Is that how I'm understanding that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think okay. the, my, my reading of that is that up until then, we were more or less working together, let's say, unproblematically, or at least without without the problems being present. But we've been doing, and this could be whatever work you can imagine, again, a committee work, teaching together, really anything yeah, so whatever it is, the process is continuing until that point where we reach that critical capacity. Exactly. Where the inward move happens and then also the outward move. Exactly, because when I um, okay. made that outward move, I stopped the, or at least paused the interaction, right? Things can't go on until we address this. Okay. Now, the demonstration of this discontent might end up in a scene. The scene itself takes different shapes. It can easily turn into violence, but we will not investigate this impossibility further. That is a very important sentence, and I want to actually put it in the context of Boltanski's broader project. So he's saying basically that there might be a scene, you know, in a sense that, you know, very heated dispute, and that scene might take uh, various shapes, and it might reach violence. And just knowing the context for this, this could mean physical violence, but this could also mean symbolic violence my voice being suppressed, uh, my voice being silent, and so on. But then they immediately say, but we will not investigate this possibility further, which is already a curiosity when you're thinking, you know, supposing you just read Distinctions or you just taught that in class, and suddenly comes this article about injustice and telling you, oh, we're not going to be talking about violence of any sorts. That's going to at least raise your eyebrow, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But... I think that the idea that's being developed across Boltanski's career is that the fact we have the capacity for violence as human beings does not mean that we're going to exercise it all the time. You know, we might exercise it in certain situations, but we also have the capacity for uh, peace and for love just as much, right? And there are other situations where we're going to exercise those capacities. And we also have a capacity for debate using um, systems of logic, arguing about what is moral and what is not moral. And that debate does not necessarily turn into violence. So I think the, the overall project, and this is only mentioned here in a half a sentence, but the overall project is trying to turn us away from thinking automatically as a sociologist about violence to thinking about the various other modes of engagement that we have in society with the understanding that that will also help us understand violence mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And actually, I think that might even be the, it's the shortest, but it might be the clearest of the paragraphs <laughs> as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So far, we've established that there's a critical moment, people stop their interaction, and now they're saying there's something wrong, and that this could end up as a scene. But more frequently... The scene turns into a discussion in which criticisms, blames, and grievances are exchanged. The scene develops into a dispute. The word scene suggests domestic quarrels, and the word dispute suggests judicial litigation. The first are seen as informal, whereas the second are managed by the judiciary system. But there are plenty of intermediate cases, like, for instance, disputes on the shop floor or the office between customers and employees or disputes in the street between drivers. We, uh, Boltanski and Teveno, have investigated the common features of those very different situations and thus 
try to outline a general framework for the analysis of the disputing process in a complex society. I really appreciate this paragraph. I mean, it's building off what you were saying in the previous one, but laying out, we're going to try to understand those mundane interactions that keep society moving forward. But the question is, how does it move forward, continuing that we constantly have these we, we reach this critical capacity, we have these moments of crisis. And if it always turned to violence, if it always turned to the, you know, the most ag- aggressive aspect of, a, of what we mean by a scene, then we could not continue to go forward. Yeah. And the interesting thing here is that they're suggesting, yeah, this could be a domestic quarrel, this could be a, a court case. But at the end of the day, they're all part of the same broad, broad, broad umbrella of human inter- you know, disputes. Right? So in a sense, we could potentially identify the same logics that a couple having a domestic dispute, um, we could identify the same logics also in a office dispute, in um, business, maybe on the road, and then of course in court, that there is some finite set of logics that are acceptable in our society. Now, Another thing to notice is that the formality or informality of these situations doesn't appear to be very important, right? So we could be looking, let's say, at a text of uh, political philosophy, let's say Adam Smith, right? But we could also be looking at someone in a random conversation touting the, the need for an open market. Regardless of how formalized or informal the logic that's being promoted is, it is still essentially the same moral logic, Right? And that's going to be a theme that's also going to be developed further in on justifications, right? That a philosopher and someone who's uh, perhaps not very well read can make the same arguments with the same level of validity, uh, perhaps not the same level of detail and consistency, but at the same time, at the core, that there are logics that we have that are widespread enough in our society to appear both in the most formal text and the most informal conversations. So now um, the article starts getting specific. And as you you yourself alluded when we started talking, very, very specific about what happens basically when we have debates, especially in situations where there are multiple people involved, where there is a common good to debate about. Now, throughout the article, the authors preview something that they're calling worlds of justification. This is the, the, the main feature of their book on justification. And each of these worlds defines a different way of thinking, a different way of reasoning about what's worthy and what's unworthy. So to give you an example, some people say that being competitive on the market any sort of market, is the sign of uh, high worth, okay? So if you have a product and it's doing fantastically, people are buying it, people are willing to pay a high price for it, that is a sign that it's a worthy product. Whereas if you are a miserable failure on the market, then clearly it also reflects on your moral character. Conversely, another way of thinking about uh, products is thinking that, well, are they helpful to our society? Is it good for us to have them? Is it something that will make everyone's lives more equal? Well, you know, think about, for example, uh, the internet. You know, is having access to it, to the internet conducive to having more people participate in our democracy and so on? Right. So this logic of reasoning would say anything that's civic, anything that's helpful to society, regardless of how it performs on the market, is good. It pushes forward the common good. And there, there are, in this article, there are six of these worlds of justification. They developed uh, seventh one 
in another publication. And each of these is a mutually exclusive way of thinking about the good. So these are, in a sense, options that the actors have in trying to justify whatever happened. And then based on the situation or the issue at hand, one of these worlds might make more sense than another world. Is that a way of understanding it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, in order to adjudicate between worlds, actors um, devise what Boltanski and Tevinov refer to as tests. And there could be tests that will help us determine between two different ways of thinking about morality, but there could also be tests to determine whether a certain way of thinking about worth is applicable or not. And we can think of that, for example, in terms of asking about a scholar's productivity, right? Um, and we all know those uh, debates, right? Is it the number of articles that you published? Is where you published those articles? Is it what those articles contain? Or is it how many citations they have? Several very different ways of testing, quote unquote, your productivity with some of those claims kind of and counterclaims coming up when someone is being evaluated for tenure and promotion, right? Uh, is it the numbers? Is it the quality? Is it the place? So I think, yeah, these sort of worlds of justification really inform a whole system of tests, testing procedures that uh, occupy many of our disputants in society. And so this is what he's saying in the next paragraph, which you haven't read, and I wasn't sure if you're planning on that, but um, a first characteristic of these situations is that persons involved are subjected to an imperative of justification. Mm -hmm. So basically, once this act happens, then one must justify their perspective on it. And then he says, these justifications have to follow rules of acceptability. We cannot say, for instance... I don't agree with you because I don't like your face. Exactly. Right. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. there are only so many acceptable ways of forming an argument in our given institutions, right, in given societies. And I think that's where the framework of uh, worlds of justification is, is that that's where they're trying to lead us. So this is not a situation where anything goes some arguments that might be made, I might disagree with them. I may say to myself, oh, that's an asinine way of thinking about it. But at least I'll say, okay, I understand the logic that's being presented to me. Saying you, oh, I, don't, I don't agree with you because I don't like your face is, I mean, I wouldn't even know how to start thinking about that mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> statement. Uh, actually, interestingly enough, in um, a previous study, what Boltanski did was have take uh, um, several thousands of letters to the editor that were sent to uh, Le Monde, the French newspaper, and he had people read those letters and rank them from the level of sane like, to crazy. Okay, yeah. Like literally with those words, right? And give them a sanity score. Mm -hmm. And after kind of compiling all these uh, responses, he, he ended up with what he calls a grammar of normality. There are all, all these letters are around. We agree with some of them. We don't agree with others. But we can say, okay, this is, uh, you know, I find the, the logic here completely faulty, but I understand what they're saying, right? I understand. I recognize that as a given logic that exists in my society. Whereas others are just, I, I say, no, this is this person is just out of their mind. And I think that's what the worlds of justification kind of set really helps us do. And it comes with a strong disclaimer that these are the most common logics in contemporary Western societies. And there's no attempt to try and say these are universal features of all Western societies, of all um, world societies. So it seems like the process would be something that could be generalized out to other areas, but the logics employed could differ. 
Exactly. And then the interesting question also is the historical question, how do these specific logics develop over time? And there's one of Boltanski's books that was co-authored with F. Schiappello called The um, New Spirit of Capitalism, really looks at a, the historical construction of one of the worlds of justification. It shows basically how that actors started using a new type of logic that gradually started to make sense and become more acceptable. But it is absolutely a constructed and not a universal set of logics. And then returning to a point you made before, which seems so key, is, now I'm trying to remember where the exact line is, but yeah, what is pertinent for the argument is the reflexivity of this critical moment. So the actors themselves, when forced to justify what is going on or their perspective, they are aware that they're turning to one of these logics. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily know, you know, the random person on the street doesn't know, okay, there's six logics I could choose from. I'm going to choose logic number two. Yeah. (laughs) But they are aware of the act of saying, well, I am going to turn to this type of logic, whether it's, um, they, they don't title it civic, but maybe they engage in a logic that he would title civic or industrial or market or, or, um, I can't remember the other ones now, but. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the, um, many breaking points with Bourdieu here is that the assumption is that all of these logics are available to everyone in our society. And they can and do use them in various situations in different ways. So it's not like I will only be using the market logic or the civic logic throughout all of the situations in my life. Then it would make no sense. But there are institutions, there are situations that are more amenable to certain types of logics, for example, um, the world of business, right? Most often we would be hearing a small subset of logics there, but at the same time, it doesn't mean that other arguments can't be made. So um, unlike critical approaches that would think that some people in society have less access to this shared resources, the assumption that Boltanski invites us to make is actually, no, people are generally critical enough and aware enough and competent enough to make these arguments in different ways and to actually employ them against what they think is unjust in their society. So we are not, for the sake of time, going to work through (laughs) his presentation of each of these six ways of understanding the world, or uh, uh, what's he called, the common worlds. But I, I do think it's worth... So there's this moment of crisis, the justification is put forth, then then what happens? <laughs> so where do we go from there? Okay, well, many things, many possibilities. Some of them would be uh, that one side prevails, that one side makes a convincing argument that actually overrides the other side, either about the applicability of the specific argument or about whether it is tested or demonstrated correctly. But I think I think that the more interesting part of this uh, theory is that it actually leaves us looking for positive or at least not nonviolent ways of uh, dispute ending. And the chapter ends with discussion of compromises, which is interesting because, as I said before, the various worlds of justification are mutually exclusive, right? So if you're saying that something is defined by its market worth, it's not defined by a traditional significance, let's say, to its community or any other types of definition. But here they're telling us, and I'm going to read a short paragraph at the end of page 374, they're telling us that a dispute can occur. So this is the bottom of 374? This is the bottom of 374. One can consider another way of ending a dispute and reaching an agreement. This is to set up a compromise between two worlds. 
In a compromise, people maintain an intentional proclivity toward the common good by cooperating to keep present being relevant in different worlds without trying to clarify the principle upon which their agreement is grounded. So dense paragraph, but I think actually very important. So we've been arguing, we've been debating for a long time. At the end of the day, we're saying something like, let's just agree that we'll partially accept your argument, even if we don't satisfy it completely, and partially keep things the same and continue from there. What we're doing basically is, at first look, is we're satisfying no one, right? Because you didn't get justice mm-hmm. that you wanted. And perhaps, you know, I also didn't keep things the same if that was my intention to begin with. But at the same time, you know, upon closer inspection, we kept something that was no less important together, which is we continue to have the same interaction, right? We stayed in the same committee. We stayed in the same department. We didn't uh, detonate the situation, right? I didn't tell you, let's say if we're in a committee together, I didn't tell you, okay, that's it, I'm leaving. I'm disbanding this committee. If I'm not telling my spouse, okay, that's it, we're getting a divorce over something like uh, who took the trash more, right? Now, that doesn't mean that the argument is over. It doesn't mean that we didn't, you know, everyone got satisfied. But at the same time, the common good here, our continued cooperation is something that survived. And I think it's, it's important to end on that note, actually, that... There is an option that many people do take, which is to compromise with the understanding that they'll revisit this problematic situation later on, which, again, leads back to a a long theme in Boltanski's work and writing that our capacity for violence is one among many capacities, right? We also have a capacity for debating justice. We also have a capacity for having peace with each other without having every single of our requirement that we've posed uh, fulfilled. We also have a capacity, and this is you know more relevant for domestic disputes, for love, right, in a sense that we're overlooking the various possible inequalities in our personal relationships or not, not even thinking about trying to balance out various responsibilities in, let's say, a familial situation. And so on. So that's just, a, I think, a good way to end this reading. And they do uh, do that right? by reminding us that justice might not be always achieved, but it doesn't mean that violence will be or, or ending the interaction will be the natural culmination point. Yeah. And even looking at the very next sentence, right? Yeah. But compromises are easy to denounce. Yeah, of course. Which might make it seem, okay, then they have no value. But the point that you're making, which is so important, is that it doesn't actually have to be a resolution to go forward. Yeah, yeah. So one of the arguments made much more strongly in the book than the article is that many of the institutions that we know today are basically built on compromises, right? Very few of them can actually serve one single logic of thinking about uh, moral worth. Uh, And many of them actually, if if closely examined, bring together several elements from various different ways of thinking about morality that have just been institutionalized and really invite sociological scrutiny. That's a a great way to end the article. I I enjoyed that discussion. I have a lot of fun working through these. So thank you again for taking the time to do this. Thank you, Kyle. I really enjoyed it. Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing our theme music, undergraduate sociologists Beth Heberger, Alicia Rios, and Simone Graham for their help with the project, and most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, thank you for giving theory a chance. (laughs) 